The Port and Tide Research Podcast is about interviewing researchers and providing an insight into their field and how they think of their field overall. It is specific in exploring and documenting some of their current or past research from the preconception of their hypothesis right through to the communication of their findings, delving into their decision-making process along the way. The discussion is generalized in hearing their thoughts on key themes within research and what their line of work takes and requires of them. The aim of Portent Tide is to put the science researchers undertake into a format that is more engaging with the capacity to reach further out to larger audiences. With a determination to maintain quality and trust with researchers by publishing the discussion in full only upon the approval of the researcher. This podcast is a conversation with Efrain Escudero and Jeffrey Lackman. Both are exploring research in relation to fungi and more specifically, the relationship between fungi and coffee plants. Efrain is completing his PhD studying the effects of fungi within coffee plantations. He explains that at any given time within the lab he is part of, there are multiple ongoing hypotheses, and explains how these questions consistently arise due to the part of the mycology field he is part of being relatively young. One such hypothesis Efrain mentions is the exploration of how the relationship between fungi and coffee plants interact with pathogens and parasites. Jeffrey is completing his master's degree and was at the biological station working in the capacity as a researcher looking into fungi growth within the coffee plant leaf. These fungi are known as endophytes. Coming into the Las Cruces biological station, I was unaware of exactly what research was being conducted. So upon meeting and spending time with Efrain and Jeffrey, I asked if we could start the conversation by having them explain how they built their knowledge of fungi with an intent to provide a potential novice of the kingdom of fungi with a path to being a professional mycologist if someone wishes to do so. As you can see, I make a fool of myself at times using the incorrect terminology, but I'd hope in some way this reflects that complex subject matter is accessible provided the right questions are asked. Finally, this conversation was a great insight into how to navigate key themes of research and a window into how asking these questions can generate different viewpoints and strategies for long-term success and health in research as a career. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Two minutes. (laughs) Sweet. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I say this to everyone. Thank you for sitting down with me. And it's just like, it's a pleasure to speak with you guys. So um, introduce yourselves and um, professional backgrounds. Education backgrounds as well, yeah. Yeah. So my name is Jeffrey Lackman. I'm a... um, I'm a master's student for NDSU, North Dakota State, and um, I got my undergrad in English uh, from Luther College in Iowa, and um, yeah, so I'm, I'm finishing up my first year master's program, um, completing a lot of, most of my field work for my thesis right now, yeah. Awesome. Efrain? Well, um, I'm, my name is Efrain Escudero, so I'm a biologist. I studied in Mexico, uh, the baccalaureate degree and my master's degree also. Uh, I've been working with fungi maybe for seven years now. Uh, now I, this is my last year of, of the PhD program. So I'm basically studying uh, endophytic fungi that could be useful as biocontrollers for solving uh, coffee diseases. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Cool. So I think we, we talked about starting today was just um, 
a bit differently, but oh, sorry, where we're starting today is a bit differently to how I normally do it, just because I think it'd be cool to, as I said, to purely explore um, the world of fungi, and um, especially because I have, don't have a background in it, and I think there's, it is a different world. So I thought, you know, that question that we could start with was the one I gave you, Jeffrey, um, about. Uh, where you started when you first started learning about fungi and what was the process uh, they introduced um, each new topic, uh, in what sequence, sorry. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then when we wrap that kind of topic up, I guess how you would do it yourself, how you would structure a course yourself if you were to try to teach some new people. Mm -hmm. And both, maybe we can compare both of your education because um, you, when did you start learning about it, fungi, friend? Uh, I think my first approach with fungi, it was on 2013, maybe. Yeah, I was uh, in a project that uh, consists basically in identifying all the edible fungi in a, uh, in, a, in markets in Oaxaca, in Mexico. So. Uh, it is known that, for example, uh, Mexicans are like a, like a mycophile uh, society. We, we, we eat fungi for tradition. And in some markets, it is incredible the variety that you can find. So uh, we were trying to, to, to see these species and also if they were selling them as edible only or sometimes medicinal mm -hmm. so that was that was my first approach to, to mycology mm -hmm. okay so it was uh, less more informal and informal. Mm -hmm. and just going to the market yeah now, how, is this uh, was this like a once a week like a weekend type market yeah or? during my uh, during it was on saturday is the market mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. and it yeah. was quite popular yeah it's what it, it's popular for the region because it's like an, a particular part in the in the state of Oaxaca, which is uh, Tlajiaco. So it's on the like in the middle something in the street of, of the state. So uh, what we were basically doing was uh, ethnomycology, which is the study of fungi and the relationship with with, with humans. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay, all right. Um, Sorry, guys, just let me do one thing mm -hmm. with this camera over here. Um, but yeah, uh, Jeffrey, start by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, uh, yeah, so I, um, like I said before, I graduated with a degree in English, so I, I didn't have a ton of um, experience with, with uh, fungi. Um, but I, after I graduated, I got really interested in, in foraging um, in the woods around Minnesota. And uh, also really interested in nutrient cycling, so how how things move through a forest and a pr or a prairie, and so I just a lot of my education was really just sort of self-directed. I would read things on my own and try to figure out kind of the life cycle. Um, of, I started with Pisidiomycetes and then branched out from there. Um, but when I went to um, graduate school, I I took a course, uh, fungal biology, that gave me sort of the the, the foundation for what I do now. Um, and the approach for that course was the first the first few units are just very basic sort of fungal anatomy. So, what's the difference between the different fruiting structures, and what's the difference between um, different 
hyphae and um, senositic hyphae versus other kinds of hyphae. And so then, then once you have that foundation, we just sort of went through the larger, the larger group. So basidiomycetes and then um, uh, and ascomycetes and then we finished out basically going group by group and then we, you know with uh, slime molds and and then aquatic fungi and yeah. Can you explain the word hyphae? Yeah, so uh, a hyphae is like a uh, an arm of uh, mycelia is this collection of hyphae and it's the body, it's a single cell um, that extends uh, and feeds so the tip of the hyphae, the hyphal tip is what's actually releasing um, and growing, and uh, it exudes uh, nutrient or it exudes metabolites to break down the environment, and then it can absorb the nutrients that way. Okay, so I, I kind of um, brought up that topic about how the um, fungi sense their environment. Probably not the right word using sense, but um, so that seems to go into that sort of territory about how it's gaining information or. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or giving out information right yeah so like for example um, there's studies that show how branching happens so like if a hyphae is growing and it's growing singly and then you stress it by putting a plate on top it will grow it will mm -hmm. diverge right and so um, it's it's branching pattern is a lot of, sometimes a result of sort of stimuli so if it, if it finds that if it finds a lot of nutrients here it's going to pull Resources and hyphae will converge on a on a nutrient-rich area, and if it if it wants to if it needs to explore because there's not enough nutrients, it will explore um, in different ways. Yeah. Okay. And it's just sort of while it's already say it has a a a, um, a good source of some whatever it's gaining, uh, is it still exploring at the same time? Is it just focusing on this one source and just putting all resources towards that? Or is, it, or is it trying to explore different avenues at the same time? I think in large part that may depend on conditions and the species, but I, just in my own observations, yeah, there's there's some, you know, if they're not just going in this mm -hmm. direction. There's some exploration happening um, okay. because in a given environment, you know, it's beneficial to be, if there's two food sources and you can get to both, it'd be beneficial to have both. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so what are your thoughts, Efrain, on whether it's, is it good to start with anatomy first or is it, is it could yeah, be good to with do? with the taxonomy, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like uh, the basic and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the basis on for, for understanding all the major groups and with that you can move forward to what they do on nature. So you can classify them uh, on, on different ecological guilds and uh, you will see that there's a variety of, of, of functions for them. Some are not restricted to, to one guild, for example. They can have both, uh, two or maybe three uh, types of, of, of guilds. So, for example, you can f uh, see that maybe a fungi it is a parasite, uh, maybe with the other life cycle, because they have two uh, life cycles. Mm, then it's not a parasite, maybe it's a uh, sapotroph. So that's interesting because they are like very well suited to adapt uh, to almost any kind of environment. Mm -hmm. So to to realize uh, how they do it, you need 
like a, a stronger basis on, on taxonomy okay. to to recognize the structures and and what they do. Mm -hmm. So within, I guess within fun fungi ed education, you're really saying that um, the anatomy is the foundation. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I guess I ask the question because sometimes you can approach um, you can approach um, learning about species from a population level or more of a landscape level. So I was wondering whether or whether or not there is that sort of approach um, that's less specific but more generalized. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I guess the way that we started the class, I mean, it was like half of a lecture, but basically we split it um, into sort of this friend or foe type thing. So is a, are, are fungi good for people or bad for people? And so then we went through several ways in which they're good. So, you know, you have cheese and you have... Uh, alcohol and you have um, uh, medicine and that, that sort of thing and then bad you have plant pathogens rusts that devastate crops and and so on a very broad sense just looking at the application to people's lives and whether or not you need to think of them as good or bad is a good way to get you to start thinking about function because if you think about you know what is a thing doing is it is it helping me is it assisting me in making a food or is it actually stealing my food ruining my food yeah, yeah. Um, cool, let's explore evolution of fungi then, um, so, and also evolution of use. So where would you guys start if you were to pick a point there? Evolution of use? Well, 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 well I, I guess evolution yeah, to yeah. begin mm -hmm. with, but then also mm -hmm. when, when mm -hmm. you're aware of people, um, in situations mm -hmm. you're aware of people, say, starting mm -hmm. to, s to explore, mm -hmm. that are really you know, bedded, mm -hmm. bedded in, in evidence. I think uh, ancient cultures know a lot of, of fungi. They can recognize uh, like edible and uh, medicinal and also psychotropic fungi. So I think uh, the, the approach of the human kind of with fungi, I think it's very, very old. Mm -hmm. So it is supposed that it triggers the communication among people and also some well, some people say that uh, they also are related to to the expansion of, of consciousness so uh, yeah uh, for example you can see it in, in some cultures in, in Mexico that they can give a precise name to different species and if you look at the taxonomy like the occidental taxonomy uh, it's quite similar and sometimes it's it resolves better mm -hmm. so yeah uh, that that gives you an idea of how old are, is our relationship with, with fungi <coughs> so for example with with that's what with fungi that we can see in the forest the macro fungi but the thing the things changes with 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 iphomycids, with the things that we cannot see unless we have a petri dish with agar, for example. Mm -hmm. So in that way, uh, yeah, we can see the relationship uh, in products, as Jeffrey said. So, but uh, we were not able uh, a few years ago to, to know that they were fungi. We just knew the process, but we don't know what was happening and then who was acting. Mm -hmm. Was there, uh, you were talking about um, Mexico, understanding of a macro fungi was there any seemingly understanding of the mic the micro your stuff you're talking about that like there were, there was a use of say particular fruits or particular 
uh, fermentation practices that um, created results that seemed similar to the macro to the macrofungi. Mm-hmm. Was there anything, any history or something like that? Mm, I think uh, something is known about, uh, for example, uh, tepache, which is uh, like a fermentation of pineapple. And also, I think they, they can use uh, some apples also. So they know that something was uh, acting there, but they they cannot realize that it, it was like a, a fungi or something. But in the forest, uh, if they see like a log, a uh, dead log with white mycelium, they can recognize that that's the fungi. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is, is um, how similar are different species of fungi? And I guess I'm asking what, what other manners you might use to um, differentiate cousins? Mm-hmm. Is it something like shape, color, um, size? Well, among uh, fungi, I think, are one of the most cryptic, cryptic organisms in the world. So they, they, to be cryptic, it means that they, they look the same in color, shape, size, smell, even. But they, the changes are on the genomic level. So um, maybe with fungi, uh, will be possible to support the idea to to stop talking about species and talk about genomes, for example, the, okay. which is the new era. So right. th- this is what is coming. But mm, in the field, uh, that's one of the main reasons uh, it is so difficult to, to do ecology with, with fungi because you can't recognize uh, one individual from another one. So uh, maybe you can talk about maybe populations uh, if you are in a very long uh, distance. Mm-hmm. but. Mm, I know they are like super organisms, so sure. it's So hard. can you elaborate on the thing we discussed earlier about the the complexity of recogni- not maybe not recognizing an individual or not recognizing or, or recognizing populations instead? Mm-hmm. Um, just how you might like why is it that you can't recognize one? Um, say, I would uh, my probable personal opinion. I would have thought. I see a, a fruit and I thought would have thought that that was one individual and then the ones next to it were different individuals and um, but you're telling me that they're all the same thing mm-hmm. so can we explore um, yeah can we just explore what that that kind of idea in general why is it that they form such large connections mm-hmm. and the question isn't entirely clear, but yeah, uh, can yeah, you can you yeah. build but off that? The thing is that the what we see in the forest is the uh, are basically fruiting bodies. So the true fungi is the mycelium, which uh, lies underneath all of those fruiting bodies. So uh, you can follow the network if you want to, and maybe the size is of meters. And I can remember the. The name of the fungi that lives in the, I think it's in Canada or the U.S. Isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's um, a honey mushroom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the fruiting body, and it's yeah, it's the largest organism on, on the on, on the planet, and it's like uh, 50 kilometers wide, perhaps more. I don't I don't know exactly, but it's in it's in the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. in in Oregon or I'm not exactly sure. I don't want to, right. but mm-hmm. it yeah, 
and so I, I imagine that they've just taken samples from different locations and tested mm -hmm. them and just and, yeah, like, they're genetically the same mm -hmm. organism individual I have to imagine that kind of shook the shook the um, sort of fungi world it's fungi researchers would have gone yeah. crazy over that right um, breaking into that what um, where have there been breakthroughs in the research um, in your careers or in the history you're aware of you're aware of Mm, definitely the, the the molecular techniques that we are using to to identify fungi are one of the most powerful tools ever made so uh, all the texts that were written before that era uh, suffer from are suffering from from big changes actually uh, the big databases of that contain the fungal names are changing every six months now so yeah what is something today maybe it's something else tomorrow and some things they didn't have uh, like uh, higher labels in the taxonomy for example they can they're they can have like a genus but they don't know how to put that genus so now it says insertae sedis which is like the family is unknown so okay mm -hmm. And so what is it that's really changing every six months to bring about? Because all, all, the, all of the taxonomic uh, work that it is done around the world. So there are like uh, specialists on each group. So for example, my advisor works with, with Trichoderma, which are uh, Ipocralian species, which is the order. So um, before her PhD, I think there were like 20, nearly 20 species of Trichoderma known in the in the entire world after his her, her work was done the count uh, went up to 200 something and now we have 250 more or less trichoderma species only so uh that's with that case and the, those repeats with other groups of fungi so it is incredible <laughs> is there is there um projections of where that that particular one might expand towards yeah uh, the the people says that uh, fungi might be the most diverse organisms in the world more than insects right okay that's so massive. Mm -hmm. um, okay. yeah so we touched on that um, uh, radiocarbon mm -hmm. can you guys explain what what was done in, in that experiment and what is that do you think that is one of the most significant um discoveries within the world of fungi because i'm only basing that because I'd, I'd previously heard about it but i wonder if that was one of the most significant discoveries or well, if there was others well i mean it's a it's a use very very useful tool to see how nutrients are moving around so uh, and what what things are doing um so if you have say like a um, uh, plant fungal partnership and you can create a traceable isotope um, and you know where you put it and then you can see where it ends up you can say okay that that is giving carbon to that not the other way around um, right and you can do that with any number of relationships so it's it's a way to sort of make the invisible visible um, and there's other more dramatic ways that you can do it too I mean you can actually make things phosphoresce, so like you can under ultraviolet light. So one of the ways people 
use that is with insects. So if you have, you want to see where an insect moves over a given period of time, you coat it in this, in this substance, and then you run a light, and you can see everywhere it's gone, um, and you can. It's a so basically the the ability to trace where things go, in any field is going to be really useful. Mm -hmm. So like for example with sewage, a completely different example. But if you can dye the water and mm -hmm. see where it ends up, you know a lot about how it moves. Sure. The same is true for for fungi. Um, and if you have the capability to do that, it makes it makes uh, the questions you can ask really uh, widens the scope. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, what type of questions ha have widened that scope that have come from, say, that um, capacity to map distribution? Yeah. So, I, I you know, I, I'm pretty new to the to the field. I, I've, you know, my, I don't, I haven't read as widely as some. But like some of the things that really have caught my attention are things like um, tracking where mycorrhizal fungi are moving nutrients um, in when they're when they're you know partnering with many different plants and so it's kind of a pop culture thing now but thinking about forests as networks and sort of the ability to move nutrients from one place to another from one species to another and thinking of fungi as the facilitators of that I think for a long time um, people have a plant-centric view so they see a plant and think of the plant as partnering with the fungi, but perhaps it's it's clearer to see the relationship as the other way around. The fungi are partnering, are sort of the the main driver of the relationship with the plant. Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. Oh, and, and we yeah, let's break into that. Um, we talked on two topics there with like the market-like structure you you, you introduced, and there was another one. Um, oh, you were discussing that it wasn't always mutualistic, which is yeah. perfect. Perfect. What you're saying then? Yeah. yeah. So, so I think what's really tempting, and because ecology is so complicated and so contingent on so many different factors, that to like define a relationship and say, okay, this is a mutualism, this is a parasitism, this is a you know commensalism, but we're beginning. I mean, it's intuitive, but it, it, starting to see that it's not always mutualistic. It's only mutualistic under certain circumstances. So an example might be like you have a plant and a fungi that are partnering, and during um, during times of of plenty, in terms of when there's a lot of water in the system, uh, both benefit from the relationship. But when there's not a lot of water, when it's drought, when it's the the plant may suffer. The plant may get less resources from the fungi, or the other way around. And so um, it's not necessarily always clear what is a mutualism and what is not and whether or not it's always that way okay mm -hmm. are there many people tempted to paint it that way like sort of black and white within the field is it something that's commonly done or is it something that's externally done maybe more media or more pop culture i mm, maybe a friend can speak to this but i think um maybe it's a product of i i my my thinking is that it might Part of it might be a product of textbook learning. So you see, you want to teach a relationship to say this is a mutualism and show, um, and then to add a layer of complexity that, okay, well, it's not always a mutualism, um, is challenging to teach and conceptually. So I think 
that might be have to do with it. But I, I, I think generally people are open to, in the field, are open to like contingencies like mm -hmm. that. So, mm -hmm. um, but we, it's it's very human to just want it to be a simple. You always know how it's working. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so that leads into so that times of scarcity. Is that when the market-like structure within the mycelium is most ob observed, or is it also in times of plenty? Mm. Maybe places of plenty is a okay. better okay. better thought. Um, Why is in that? terms of how I, you know the study that I, I'm thinking of, so you have a mycelial, um, you have an individual that has partnering with multiple plants, maybe over ten meters, say, and in this part of the the plot there's a lot of phosphorus and in this part of the plot there's not a lot of phosphorus so in the relationship the the fungi is able to you know basically get the most bang for its buck in terms of what carbon it gives the plant so the relationship is the plant or what sorry what phosphorus gives the plant the the plant gives the fungus um, carbon in exchange for phosphorus um, and so in a place where there's a lot of phosphorus in the soil, the plant can actually get some of its own. It doesn't need to rely so heavily on the fungus. And so um, it's in the, and but in places where phosphorus is low, the plant is kind of desperate and it needs help. And so the there are experiments that have shown that fungi can use that to their advantage. They can move carbon over to this low phosphorus area. So using carbon tracing, so like a carbon isotope that we, we can trace, it starts over here in the high phosphorus, sorry, phosphorus, the high phosphorus um, area, and it moves over here to the low phosphorus area, and then it can exchange that for more, for more money or for more carbon um, than it would get over here. So it can actually play the market. Yeah. That's pretty fucking cool. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, and what does that, where does that information take you in thinking about... Um, Say, so we, we're studying here in um, this location. How does it, how does that information map out to different biomes? Um, is that a fair question? Is it, is it, do yeah, you think it's, it's different. It's open, I think, largely open question. Okay. So, um, sometimes the the resource of scarcity is different. It's not phosphorus. Maybe it's water. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's. Um, communication so if if to under to know where pests are at um, so you know if, if something can control that or can can manipulate it that's not the plant um, then I think when you look at a biome maybe the first step would be to try to determine what is that there's probably many but what is the resource that is being exchanged and um, is it variable or is it because some places have totally universal nutritive makeups and some places are highly variable so um, you just have to think about the sort of the what's growing and why you know that sort of thing but yeah okay um, build from there um, yeah maybe in that point uh, you can also see that uh, there are studies that talk about uh, ecological or tropical shifts. So, for example, now we know that some species that now are like 
mutualistic before years ago, many years ago before they were like parasitic. So a fungus can can shift its its weight of, of, of nutrient of, of how they feed uh, depending on the opportunities of the environment. And so for example they can they, they have improved uh, like cicads. Uh, there are fungi parasite cicads. So because cicads are very close to, to some uh, plant roots, mm -hmm. then uh, fungi might uh, change to, no, we are not parasiting cicads anymore. So we are going to parasite or maybe live inside the plant. So they become endophytic now. But before they were like uh, like a parasite. And you talk about the same species. Uh. Yeah. So now they have evolved to be endophytic. endophytic so uh, that tells you that maybe in a hundred years, maybe they will shift again if this endophytic um, association is not working for them. They can shift. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, so we're talking about a, you're saying a hundred. That's over a hundred years that yeah, shift. Yeah, for saying something, but maybe it's a thousand, maybe okay. millions. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah, you can you can date it because uh, there are some techniques that are called like a molecular. You you create a, like a phylogenetic tree. But you add uh, our molecular clock, so you can trace approximately, approximately how many years ago this shift was done. So, yeah, the scale is large, but. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, so the question with the one area of fungi behaving differently in different um, biomes we previously discussed was dormancy. Could we just quickly cover what that that was, and then we'll just explain, like, because you guys t uh, spoke about natural disaster, so I'm kind of interested in where that where that goes. But mm -hmm. can you explain um, dormancy, because you you're just talking about it in North North Dakota. Yeah, yeah. So North Dakota, much of the year is very very cold, and the ground is frozen. So if you have a a plant pathogen like a rust, um, it can uh, rust have pretty like wheat stem rust has a very complex life, si life cycle and so um, in in the summertime it needs to be able to infect plants um, but in the wintertime it has to be able to survive to the next year and so they have developed a, a life stage of a spore that is melanized so it's very dark um, and it's protected from like UV radiation and freezing temperatures um, and it can survive in the soil for through the winter. And so this is can be really problematic for farmers in an agriculturalist because just be, you have you have wheat stem rust but you you may have had it from 2 3 years ago um, and you've rotated your crops and it wasn't really a, a problem with your beets but then you switch back to wheat and you find oh the rust is still there and it's still infecting my plants and so right. you have to yeah there's two ways we can go from that. I was thinking um, one was we can just break into that agriculture pest versus um, beneficial, I suppose. And but I was also thinking about going towards the natural disasters. So let's go to agriculture first. Um, if we discuss, well, you, you just you you guys had spoken about uh, okay how quickly they can shift from a, a classification of parasitic to 
uh, endo, endo, endophytic, endophytic, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so can we discuss how how that might have changed in the world of ag- like agricultural um, farming? Yeah, um, in coffee, for example, it, it is quite interesting that uh, if you isolate fungi from maybe branches and leaves, you will have a lot of colletotricum. Uh, and now we know that colletotricum has many species. And if you sample uh, some rubiaceae, which is the, the botanical family for coffee, you will also have them. But uh, plants in the forest are not sick. Why the coffee is is it? So are the same species? Maybe. But what else? So the rest of the coffee community is the is the key to understand uh, how is how how is the balance of, of species present in a coffee, which is subjected to to a strict uh, management, and with the w- wild species that are that are out there uh, with a lot of more beneficial species inside them. So um, that that's one of the uh, one of the of the points. Uh, this uh, has been seen in Evea, which is uh, another tree in the tropics, and also in cacao. So wild cacaos, wild teobroma, which is the, the genus, uh, also have more diversity inside them than those uh, teobromas that are in, in, in agricultural management. So part of this is the surrounding community of plants that can provide like a source of, of, of potentially uh, helpful species for for those for for the coffee for the teobroma for the vea whatever so they give them the the, the balance it's like uh, with us with with the microbes that we have on on our guts so it's uh, we can shape the community uh, with the things that that we eat so that's why it is recommended to eat fiber and maybe drink a lot of water and stuff like that so it's basically the same with with the plants so uh, the same happens when we take like um, antibiotics we are killing our mm-hmm. our microbiome so if you put some fungicides on, on the plants you are killing both uh, problematic species but also maybe you are taking away uh, the, the helpful species that could be living inside the plant so now that's why um, with uh, with my study we want to to kind of restore the, the, the balance in the coffee plants so they can uh, protect itself. Okay, mm-hmm. Okay. cool. Um, we'll break into the study in a, in a moment. Uh, just explore, well, that's, you just mentioned like a sort of man-made disaster in terms of uh, herbicides um, or pesticides. How, what, what are ways natural disasters can really impact um, agriculture, but also um, more wild locations as well and mm-hmm. fungal communities? Mm-hmm. Uh, the effects are really, you can see it really fast. For example, with hurricanes here in Central America, uh, when a hurricane hits the forest, then you have a lot of, of trees uh, that are down. So that shapes the, the, the community of fungi because you start to they start appearing like uh, siloids, which are black fungi, and if the population of them uh, like is like a abundant, 
they can parasite maybe healthy plants so uh, from a from a spot of, of fallen down trees that is like let's say like a, a kilometer a square kilometer of diameter then it can become like more like two kilometers so so the impact it's is, is huge so I think there's only a study of, of how of how hurricanes are impacting the, the, the forest in, in Puerto Rico so they have they have been able to track uh, the forest recovery and what is happening on, on with, with fungi so uh, are they helping the, the forest to, to decompose but also are they helping the forest to to recover from 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 the hurricane impact so the study still is going until now so it will be interesting to, to, to read discussions on it does that break into the idea of what we were talking about? Um, we we're talking about historically, what was the word you used? Um, historically contingent. So in other words, if that, that hurricane decimates an area, um, spores are blown mm -hmm. into that area, and they, they're, um, I guess, uh, what would be the word, pioneering. Mm -hmm. um, would that be a case? Uh, it could be, like yeah, it could be. Uh, one of the ways that, uh, so historical contingency is this idea that that how a community is shaped depends on what arrives in what order. So, um, I mean, the best, the easiest way to think about it is like an island, a completely bare desert island, and then you have a species come that uh, that is problematic, and or that if you have several species arrive, it depends on how, what what order they arrive in, and so. Yeah, I mean, natural disaster could essentially create a kind of island within a larger mm -hmm. ecosystem, and then what arrives first may impact what community forms. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, let's uh, yeah, let's break into the studies. Who wants to go first? Go yeah. first? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so the first question I really have is: uh, prior to beginning. If you imagine uh, that research as a puzzle, uh, how many of the puzzle pieces were already laid out and in choosing that gap in information, um, just kind of paint the picture of what you, what you found prior to even having your hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So uh, regarding as a puzzle is interesting because uh, you can see that uh, maybe it's not that there is a huge gap but a small gap. So you can try to to fill that that small gaps in order to to aid to to fulfill the, a big a big piece of the puzzle. So I think. Um, okay, just if you can lean into the mic. Okay. Just mm -hmm. the rain is yeah, yeah. Just mm -hmm. Okay. So um, I think what we do on on the, on the lab is basically uh, answering small questions that eventually will answer like big things so when are we going to have the big thing solved i don't know <laughs> maybe it will be uh, some maybe three generations after me so i don't know so uh but but that's a, that's the interesting in science that that you are putting like little stones and eventually you will have a, a, a full brick and uh, yeah but and now choosing uh, which stone do you want to to, to report? It's it's another question because 
uh, it depends on on, on what what, on what your intention is attracted, what you feel passion for it. So, uh, I think a good a good thing to know that if you are on the on the right way, it's like uh, despite you are uh, like after a, a day on the field work, uh, on the field, you you can still working through the night. So yeah, you are on the right way. You, you have the passion to, to to keep going. So uh, you will have a lot of challenges during the, the process of, of research uh, of any kind like uh, I mean it can be ex uh, strictly academic but also like personal and you will you will need to to, to take all in, in balance so to, to keep moving forward mm -hmm. so, you feel that, so you feel as a uh, there's just a, a different set of um, inputs in that are coming in when you're actually trying to judge what the best thing to study is so you, you basically suggested that there was an aim of that lab. What would be if you um, is there is it like a mission statement of the lab, or is it more of a or um, just a generalized? Um, just a, we can call it like a, a line, but it's not like a straight line because it's more like a tree. Because uh, in the lab uh, they are forming students on on different fields. Okay, the the, the main issue is, is fungi. But you can have people working with uh, entomopathogenic fungi. You can have people working with uh, maybe um, mycorrhizae fungi, uh, and so on. So uh, that's the interesting thing because for answering your question, you will need not only a guide; you will need several more. So the team just grows. And for example, in my case, I have like my 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 principal advisor, she's like, okay, so I'm the expert on, on fungi, on maybe taxonomy, ecology, uh, and all that stuff, but I can't help you a lot with uh, biocontrol. Okay, so then we need someone who is an expert on biocontrol. And then if I want to answer another question, for example, chemical questions, then I need a chemist in my team. So I'm like uh, the sum of the parts of, of, of of all the advisors, of all the people who's helping me to, to answer my, uh, the questions I want. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's nice. Okay, okay cool. Um, yeah, so let's lead into what the hypothesis was, and I suppose more or less how you worded it, but also what variables you wanted to address mm -hmm. within that. So first that uh, we now know that you have uh, water reactions are full of uh, most uh, most diverse uh, diversity of fungi than the coffee. Uh, second, now we know that uh, there are hypocaralian species that can be useful for for the coffee. And now we are on the stage where uh, we're on the stage where uh, we are trying a couple of those fungi to see the the beneficial effects on on the plants. So we wanted to see, for example, the uh, a protection effect. For, against uh, some pathogens, for example, Mycena citricol or, or the coffee rust. But now we have some results that uh, says that one of our species is helping with the growth promotion of the coffee plants. So we weren't expecting that, but it's what it came, and so it's good. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, let's break into the method and, and how, how you've gone about um, collecting uh, 
deciding to collect results before you mm -hmm. arrived here? Well, um, I think the methodology the methodology always change because you you can have uh, an idea that looks perfect and solid, and once you're in the field, it results that no, it is not perfect. Uh, I think uh, it it is maybe it takes a lot of time to to do it. Uh, you are run out of resources, uh, so you need to be flexible to, to, to make decisions that can um, be like the right decisions to to get the amount of data uh, that is just enough to, to answer your questions or to keep the work going. So um, maybe what anal uh, break down, what are some key factors that you expected and, and found? expected within the method and found and expected but you were surprised about so what mm -hmm. were the key, key, key factors within the field that you saw were different mm -hmm. so for example uh, in the part of the isolation of the fungi uh, we didn't know what to expect what the, the amount of fungi so we were traveling with a certain amount of, of, of petri dishes with, with agar and in a field trip, uh, we just run out of plates, so we need to stop the field trip right there because we didn't have the the material to process all the samples. So it was like I don't know how many petriches, thousand and three hundred maybe something right. like that. <laughs> yeah, and we needed more. So mm -hmm. okay. and uh, what was the timeline on actually progressing there? Yeah. We were expecting to, to process all uh, all the samples in a year, but uh, I mean, from the isolation, purification, and identification. So, yeah, I think we are we were like uh, on time. Uh, and then the thing with, with that has been even more challenging is like, how do I apply this species to the coffee plants? Uh, we have tried uh, several kinds of, of, of substrates uh, we were using uh, rice for example we, but the rice get uh, uh, contaminated by yeast really easily uh, so we change it to um, we try to use uh, like uh, I think was horse was meat for horse which is uh, made of grass and, and all kinds of, of herbs and it didn't work so we came back to to potato dextrose agar but in 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 more quantities and that's how we did it so yeah, yeah we, you need to try and several um, several things uh, until you find the, the right one so uh, you lost a lot of time on, on, on the way but maybe it's it is not lost it is like a, it is a time of, of proving but you need to hurry up because because we all have a deadline Sure. Especially for a scholarship, if you have a scholarship or fundings or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so, where are you at in this process now? Would you say you're still in you're still in the data collection and sort of? It sounds like you're straddling sort of the data collection and results mm -hmm. and, and discussion at the same mm -hmm. time. Yeah, because well, uh, I'm still on the data collection, but uh, on another s step uh, now, I'm collecting. Well, I already have I collected. Uh, chemical data mm -hmm. so that came from my isolates from four years ago yeah. so 
uh, it is a long process and it's like uh, a total uh, a complete uh, different thing of what I've done so far it's I'm, uh, I'm naive I, I was naive on, on the field so <laughs> it was challenging but it was also really cool because you are you're still learning so um, you never stop uh, learning the learning process and uh, the techniques and the tools that are available now will change tomorrow so you need to keep to keep going so so not to be stuck in, in just in just a way so yeah it has been an amazing amazing journey i think yeah, yeah <laughs> I, um let's break in that question that was troubling you for a second the the um depicting the results mm -hmm. you were kind of talking about how you were concept conceptualizing this in your head mm -hmm. so where are you at with thinking about that now yeah that question mm, i think uh the more results you have and the more things you read you realize this the more or less you know yeah, <laughs> right <laughs> so uh it looks like uh, ambitious to try to, to to solve like big questions on any field not only fungi but uh you need to start somewhere so um, the i think like that um that now that i have like a, a vision of of how big can a fungus okay of how big can a question be related to fun to fungi mm -hmm. uh wow it can have several ways for example on on the chemistry part you can be looking for diversity of of compounds but then if something is interesting you can keep going only on one compound for example and if it results that okay it's useful for us or as an antibiotic then you need uh, other people to to get involved to synthesize that compound for example so yeah it's it's crazy so uh, how far i want to take my results well i need to to remind myself that i i decided to to do some things with only on the on the on the level of describing what i what is that every fungus have so that's it i can keep working on on the next steps but i need like finish that uh that race today so yeah. okay with that one so mm -hmm. the complexity seems um that you as you were saying to me earlier that you change the, depi the depiction you're changing what you're trying to show about mm -hmm. this and so that is that sort of the, what you're battling with there that it's just mm -hmm. like the changing that depiction or how how you present the results ultimately changes mm -hmm. what you're saying about this yeah mm -hmm. is yeah, that because a fair mm -hmm. way to because the results can be like diverse also so uh you can you can tell a big story with your results but you can split it in like small stories so on what depends that it depends on on the way you want to write it because sometimes like a large article can be like boring but if you split it in small stories then you can sell it better mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so and it's more like attractive for the public I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. so you actually you're, even at that stage you're really judging it mm -hmm. almost attention span yeah for um. example it happened with an article when we have like two 
two themes. Uh, first was the antagonistic capability of fungi to control the infests and uh, the ability of those fungi to resist to, to, to pesticides. Okay. So the story was good, but we didn't have like uh, plant assays. So every journal we send it said, no, it, it is a good story, but we need like plant assays. So, okay, let's put it in another way. Let's talk with all the people and see what they think. So what happened is that we split uh, the work in two stories. First, the story is the antagonistic part, and the second story is uh, only related only to the fungicide uh, resilience. Mm -hmm. So that's how it is. So you need to change everything, and those changes take a while because <laughs> you need to rewrite things and yeah. and maybe do some extra experiments. Mm -hmm. well, when you're at that sort of uh, deliberating on what you're going to do, especially at that stage, once all of the data is collected, how does breaking that up make you reflect on the hypothesis that you had, let's say, a year prior, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, a year earlier, um, to um, to having that res those results? Does it make you feel like you needed to change what your I suppose I wonder if you if you're thinking in hindsight if the if the hypothesis was different, might the data collection mm -hmm. have been mm -hmm. improved or? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. I think that uh, that the more you do the things, the more you realize that uh, the first uh, thing you, you did uh, needed some improvement. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah. For example, for, with the collection. For example, it happened to me with with the with the coding. So I used to have like a large code, uh, nah, yep. useless. So yep. you need a short code, uh, precise code, easy. So, mm -hmm. gotcha. mm -hmm. awesome. All right, let's break into Jeffrey. So same questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like so, does that, just first of all, does that sort of puzzle analogy work okay with you? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think mm -hmm. about it more like a, like a diameter, so. Okay. Um, like a circle, so when you're first learning, like in grade school, you expand the circle very fast, so you learn about mammals, you learn about literature, you learn about all these things, and, and it expands and it expands, and then you get to undergrad and you pick a major, and it, and it narrows to like, okay, we're just going to learn about math, yeah. okay? and then, then you get to graduate school and it really narrows further, and you if you say I'm just going to learn about, uh, uh, you know, endophytes, yeah, and that seems like really strange when you think about it. But actually, that's how the circle widens. You have to sort of push a very little tiny point out, yeah, and then everything else can follow, and then a little bit more, and then follow. Um, and so, uh, what I think about less than a puzzle piece is more like where can I push at the edge of the circle okay. to uh, make it, to widen it? Yeah. Um, no, I really like that. That's yeah. a cool way to think about it's it. Not, it's not my idea. There's a, there's a visual of it online somewhere that I read, read and, and it made sense to me. But, um, yeah, you're just kind of this tiny little point right at the edge of the circle trying to widen it just a little bit. And it may not seem like a lot, yeah. but if... You know, over time, that circle gets wider and wider. Yeah. Yeah. So it almost sounds like at the periphery of maybe not 
your fungi, I understand it, but you, you might have had questions in your other attributes of life. Mm -hmm. And that learning that little bit has answered a portion of those other questions. Is that a fair way to put it as well? Or Yeah, yeah. Um, or I think both academic questions and personal questions. So like, for example, a big question everybody asks themselves is how do I want to spend my time? Yeah. <laughs> right? And if you realize, oh, I really like doing experiments and I really like working with fungi then and you you spend your time in this one area and it answers that question yeah. okay I like doing this I can do this for a while um, yeah um, I think that's a good way to think about it I'm a little bit more practical in how I think about graduate school and and I think than some but I sort of view it as a way to think about interesting things yeah um, and you know it's I, I don't think I'm less inclined to think about it as like I'm I'm doing some really really lofty work to 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 solve giant problems although that is certainly mm -hmm. what what I'm doing but I think if you think that way at least if I think that way I get sort of depressed because yeah. you know it's so hard and you're doing the questions you're asking are very small and they make a difference um, but mm -hmm. I like to think about it. it's easier for me to think about it in terms of like okay I have a set amount of hours in a day. How do I want to spend them? And what, what will this do for the world, I guess? Yeah, yeah. okay, awesome. And so let, let's, let's lead on from where that took you to the hypothesis mm -hmm. you're working on right now. Um, yeah, so. yeah, so right now I'm in a very different spot than Efrain in terms of where, where I'm at. So we're just now starting to collect data. And um, basically the project that we're working on is seeing um, spillover of pathogens from and endophytes and, and fungi in general from coffee coffee fields to forests. So we sample the plant community in the forests and culture and, and analyze what endophytes are growing um, and, and pathogens are there. And you can say you can compare you know that across species. You can compare that across distance. Um, and when you make those comparisons, you can um, say okay maybe. Um, we're seeing a lot of uh, disease right near the edge compared to 100 meters in and so or maybe we're seeing a lot 10 meters in and so when thinking about forest fragments you know there might be a high pathogen load or endophyte load closer to the edge um, yeah so that when forming the hypothesis we were thinking about you know what kind of questions can we ask um, and and what hypotheses do we want to actually test? And um, I think we kind of settled on looking and comparing. So if if the for if if um, coffee uh, diseases are present in high quantities in coffee fields, as you would expect, then plants that are more closely related to coffee will share more of those pathogens or and endophytes to a certain extent. So. Um, yeah, so if that's the case, then we will, ex we, we will expect to see um, higher rates of coffee-associated diseases near the forest edge yep. than further in. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. How, do, how do edge effects um, normally work with pathog pathogens? Um, what, was, what did your, I guess, pre-research pre reveal so, about that? Yeah, so um, there's not a lot of work done on, on fungal pathogens moving movement moving between 
agricultural land and for and forest, but the work that has been done in where I'm from in the temperate region always tends to focus on what what is moving from the forest into the field. Mm -hmm. So we a lot of times people will think of the forest or the landscape as a reservoir for disease that can then come to your crops. Right. But if you think about if you reverse that and you look at the other direction, you have a ton of one plant all in one space mm -hmm. with very specific conditions. It's going to have really high rates of disease, um, and that's going to spill over in the other direction too. So um, when, re when doing reading, you know, reading different studies, a lot of times you do see studies that look at sort of what's coming into the coffee field from the forest. We wanted to sort of pursue the question in the other direction um, because that's an area where not a lot of work has been mm -hmm. done. So, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think we've touched on this yet, but what makes, what makes coffee vulnerable? So you're saying, like, in that sense, you're saying, I guess in theory, like you've got a small population and then if a, a disease comes comes in, there's a low immune system to that. Is that what it... Yeah, so, I mean, if you think about it from an ecological perspective, if you have a community, let's say, um, you, like a, a community that's really complex, lots of different species, if you have, say, one coffee plant among hundreds of other species, and that coffee plant gets sick, and there's another coffee plant maybe over here, this coffee plant is insulated from this one, um, from this disease, and so it can't. It it still can move over there, but there's all kinds of other things happening around it. And then, but when you pack them really close together, let's say you have one rust propagule that lands and it starts to grow, um, it has everywhere it goes, it has a, a suitable host, and so it, it exacerbates and gets really really intense. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, well, so how have you gone about your methodology uh, and creating that? Oh, well, I guess what, did you state your hypothesis explicitly and just what mm -hmm. variables were within that? Yeah, so if, um, I guess our hypothesis is that that um, we expect to see uh, higher rates of coffee-associated diseases um, among coffee-related plants near the forest edge uh, when compared to further into the forest. Um, and the way that we've, we've gone about sort of structuring a study is, you know, you have to sample plants at different distances and you want to sample plants of, uh, you want to sample enough individuals to get a robust picture of what's happening because if you just sample one, that's not really enough to say anything yep. about it. Um, but you also want to sample enough at each distance um, because if there's you know, effects of distance, you want to be able to compare um, the distances. And then you also want to sample plants that are different distances phylogenetically from one another because the hypothesis is that more closely related plants sh are more likely to share pathogens. And so if you have a, a, a very, very distantly related plant to coffee and you look and you see, okay, this, the things that are living on this leaf are really, really different than this, um, then you, you can maybe say, you know, okay, coffee-associated diseases are really intense on coffee-related plants. And so, yeah. Awesome. And so, like, you're more or less just starting the data collection. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. um, what 
has surprised you? What in terms of what you expected? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what has surprised you? What what was as you expected? Um, I think what has surprised me the most is just the sheer amount of time that each site requires. So I think we, I mean, I, I assumed I was naive coming into this, yeah. you know, I always am and you don't know until, until you get, get to a place um, and try. But I think um, thinking about the amount of work that I have, it's um, in the, the amount of time I have to do it, it's, it's like shocking. <laughs> it's shocking. Uh, and um, so I think there are things that we will, pr- we will have to adjust, certainly. Okay. Um, but uh, so that's been really surprising. Things that, that have been nice have been like, oh, we do tend to see plants. You know, I was thinking maybe the forest would be so diverse that you wouldn't find the same plant. Yeah. You wouldn't twice, right. and it'd be impossible to find individuals. But we've been to one site, and and it was pretty successful in being able to find five individuals of each species at each distance. And I thought that was that yeah. was pretty smooth compared to what what it could have been. You know, I could have not I could have been there for a whole day and not had any. <laughs> so you're losing some time in processing, but you're gaining some inconvenience of like this the actual site itself. Yeah, maybe maybe not gaining some, but maybe just preventing more loss. <laughs> okay, gotcha. uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think you know, just as I was sitting here, I, I was thinking about sort of the the timeline, and I just I don't know when I'm gonna sleep. <laughs> uh, but you know, I think that it's. Those kinds of things happen. I've never spoken to a researcher who hasn't had that problem and had to adjust. Like Efrain was saying, you know, you have you have to be flexible, and things that you plan that think in theory are really, really well designed yeah. are completely n- <laughs> non-tractable. You can't <laughs> not start it. So I think that yeah, there's going to be at least in my work now that we're starting the data collection. One of the biggest questions we're going to answer have to answer is not necessarily what is the data saying, but how do we collect it in a way that that is possible in the amount of time that I have. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's probably definitely jumping the gun, but have you thought about what I was asking Efrain, that depiction of the results? Is that something that's in your mind? Um, it was. was it at least sort of yeah. conceptualized? Yeah. What, so what, I know it sounds <laughs> like it's something that's going to change over time, but what was in your mind? Yeah, so basically when thinking about communities, what's difficult is if you have just a list of names on a, on a table, um, that's not very, it's not easy to visualize how similar those communities are. Um, so I think you want to think about way, ways to visualize communities so that you can say these two communities are more similar than these two communities. Yeah. Um, and I, the, you know, my experience with, with data representation is mainly just how do other people represent data? Mm-hmm. You know, how are they, how are they, how are they making their figures? And the figures that are really elegant are ones that, that can visually show you a comparison that is very abstract when written. So, like, okay, we're seeing a lot of this and not a lot of this in these two different sites how do you show that in a way that is compelling and and uh, like aids the reader right yeah 
Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you guys discuss that you're thinking about, think you're actually thinking about the reader. And you think, it does sound like you're thinking about attention span. And I suppose, uh, well, making it digestible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that is, that's the center of that question. Um, I think, well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about where do you guys take this. But do you want to, we can start the final questions. And yeah. it'd be cool just to hear about you guys discuss the, these. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you discussed them previously, but yeah. So you were, we already have mentioned them. That said, um, as I said, think of these more generally, but provide your own spin on them if you, if you have one. Um, so in terms of motivation and drive or curiosity or whether or not you are outcome oriented or not, um, how have you found it as the best way to approach research? And um, I suppose these are, this is something that, it, that comes into the factor of of that initial search for, search for information for something to study, but also I, I think it's also within each choice you make. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, what what would you describe is your key motivator to to do research, but also this specific research? I think for me, it's a way of um, of finding an, a a fun way to use my time. Um, I spent some time working after school and found that to be really not engaging and and I struggled with things like, you know, just personally mental health things. I was just like, this is not working. I need to do something else. Um, And I think asking questions and figuring out ways to work on them and you get to be outside, you get to travel, you get to, uh, you know, learn really cool techniques and keep learning that's that's really fun and um, and so that was like the initial motivation to keep going but as I as I do it more I think the, you have to have um, kind of a um, as, as even as much as you may love fungi it's it's going to be hard a lot of times it's going to be work um, it's going to be a job and so I think to as I've kept going, I sort of am thinking about it more and more as like uh, a way to express myself, you know, because if I don't do that, then I, then I'm just like a machine. So, you know, you, you mm-hmm. want to, you want to do it in a way that is balanced, I guess. And so I'm still figuring that out, you know, mm-hmm. how do I manage, manage it and, and maintain like my humanity um, <laughs> so yeah I don't know if that answers your question or no, it absolutely mm-hmm. does yeah what about your friend yeah for me it has been like a, uh, after finishing the my baccalaureate in biology it was like uh, okay I, I immediately have the, the contact for the masters so uh, my, my thing my, my thought was like yeah why not it looks like amazing I like to be outside I like to 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 study the, the, those those fungi, so yeah, I it's like being in the wave. Yeah. So uh, as soon as I enter the masters, yeah, everything gets more complex. But also, uh, uh, you decide for 
or discovery grows too so you keep going and then uh, because of, of relations of your advisors with other advisors in, around the world you start to know more people so uh, you don't know when you are already connected right. <laughs> before yeah. you start because for now I'm, I'm here with, with them uh, yeah. so uh, I, I wasn't expecting that for this year for example no? I was just uh, expecting for this hopefully to, to finish uh, the PhD and, and maybe starting to work as a researcher or something like that but now it's like a, a window is opening for, for doing something else yeah. and what it's going to be I don't know but okay. yeah it, it's, it's amazing it's, yeah. so um, like uh, for, for I, I think I, I'm fortunate to 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 be able to to choose every 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 single way on on, on my life because uh, yeah I yeah I feel, I feel very very free to to be to be here for example right. uh, instead of staying in San Jose or or never being here in Costa Rica and staying in Mexico so yeah I, I think um, it's been a, a a lot of hard work but also I don't know some Sometimes it's just luck, maybe, or, or yeah. circumstances, random circumstances. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. I wonder, as things have become more complex for both of you in understanding, has it been, I suppose, uh, well, I, I, it sounds like the more people you know, obviously, the more you're learning, but also, is there a, a push factor there that, that you see you're surrounded by people who are producing a certain standard? So I'm trying to explore whether or not it's like a healthy competition mm -hmm. or if it's like a, or it's just, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you on a daily basis, you're seeing other people's mm -hmm. work ethic and I'm wondering whether that shifts mm -hmm. that drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, so we had a very interesting conversation in one of my classes where we were talking about sort of scientists' workload. Um, and we were reading a book by a very, very famous scientist, uh, E.O. Wilson, mm -hmm. describing, you know, what, it, what being a scientist is like and what kind of commitment you need to have. And um, he described sort of like you have to be, you know, constantly, you know, working and... and you, you don't take vacations, you take field trips. And um, a lot of us were really uncomfortable with that in the class because it's like um, there's a reason why, why the suicide rate is high among graduate students um, compared to the overall population. And um, I think for me, one of the challenges is as I get more into it and more interested and more motivated and... Um, it becomes very easy to become really obsessed and completely unhappy. Right. And um, some people can can do that. You know, like my brother's an example of someone who's a researcher who just loves to, he would never do anything else. He just, just yeah. loves it. But for me, like I have other interests and other avenues that I want to explore. And so I'm, I'm navigating that, you know, like how do I, and I think there maybe is a generational divide. So like, older scientists who are um, they grew up in the school of like you, you really need to work really really hard and pursue your career and 
younger people, my peers at NDSU especially, are thinking more about like, okay, how do we balance ambition and, and quality of work with also like, maybe we want to raise a family, maybe we want to, um, you know, have a home and, and so I'm figuring that out. I don't know the answer, but I know that like what we do requires a lot of work, a lot of time, and um, you don't make a billion dollars. And so like um, figuring that out has been has been a challenge, and that's really where I've I've had to do the most navigating as I've gone gone through it. You know, like the learning part is, I know how to do that. I know how to like read and 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 try things and experiment. But what I don't, what I've never experienced before, is like devoting all of yourself to one thing, um, and what that can do to your <laughs> your health. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a. That's. I didn't expect that answer. That's really, mm -hmm. really in depth. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have a, a similar thoughts or frame to that? Mm -hmm. What do you mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Well, uh, I think that uh, maybe uh, the grad school can be like uh, different accordingly in where you are. For example, I think in the U.S., I don't know. Uh, it's like uh, maybe how can I describe it? Like it seems like a cold environment. So, for example, uh, and here in Costa Rica, people, well, and this uh, wasn't happening also in Mexico. This is only like a thing from from the Central America, maybe Colombia. I met some people from there. Yeah, so, for example, we have uh, here like uh, uh, coffee afternoons. So, every single day of the week, uh, at between 3 p.m. and 4 p.m., uh, Everything stops and everyone is on the dining room to take coffee. So you start speaking about everything, ideas, troubles, uh, academic things, uh, personal things, whatever. And it is a big release of stress mm -hmm. and you can get answers uh, that you weren't expecting. So it is nice and I, don't, I, I think that this is not happening in, in, in the US. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., I, I think, and I think it's an article of, I think, was science about uh, uh, the stress that uh, is put on upon upon grad students in the in mm -hmm. the U.S. And they say that yes, uh, it's like a very solitary pathway. Uh, you are on your own, uh, mm -hmm. on your own problems, on your own issues. So uh, it's difficult to to have a nice talk with, with yeah. someone else. And this is not happening here in Central America. In Mexico, it was because after coming here to, to Costa Rica for for three months during the masters, I realized that it was really nice to to have a a, a break during the day in the lab and start talking with with people. Mm -hmm. uh, right. When I came back to Mexico, I tried to do it and it worked. Uh, it was like uh, yeah, it, it feels nice. Yeah. And well, so, sometimes it was not coffee. Sometimes it was it was a beer. So. It was cool. <laughs> also, so, yeah. so yeah, I think uh, um, these uh, social uh, things, uh, relations, are uh, strongly needed to to keep uh, the mental health and also um, to to be like better persons. Because maybe you have like uh, you you share a hobby with with one of your colleagues and you didn't you don't know until. They just spoke with each other. So, uh, in that way, 
you can have all these fears of your life, like in, in this thin balance, like the family, friends, academic things, and, and stuff like that. So here, I think, uh, for me, uh, as, a, as a PhD student, it has been like a very uh, challenging in, in the part of the academic, but also in, in the sphere of social and personal development, it has been very, very nice. I mean, uh, I haven't feel alone, despite for not being here from, from Costa Rica. So yeah, it's, it's nice. Okay, so my next question is about risk. And to me, it sounds like both of you are factoring in personal health into that, and which is really interesting because, you know, I've, as I've sort of explained to both of you, like I've been looking at decision making heuristics, and, and you know there was like you take alternatives, you apply markers of progress, and you have that cost to acquiring information, and that cost is also sounding like health, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it is. I say to people, I say it's time and energy, but those really they funnel down that's the generalized factor and, and if you're talking about money money is representative of time and energy mm -hmm. which is of course um, framed ind individually so um, you know I have these questions about risk associated to hypothesis and method but it also just really sounds like the fundamental factor is where am I going like the, whereas what is my overall aim not mm -hmm. just not just the aim of my lab, but also mm -hmm. the aim of uh, you as an individual right. or your family or where you're from. So it's, it's actually a really touching kind of well, to hear both of you discuss that because it's not, it's not an answer I expected. Mm -hmm. um, would, you think, would you think there's any other risks that we haven't mentioned that kind of come mm -hmm. into your mind? I, of course, there's the risk of employment. So you invest time and energy and you maybe sacrifice years that, that you could have started a family or you could have bought a home and uh, then you get your PhD and there's no jobs. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. that's always a risk, um, a very practical risk, but one that is real. And um, I think that's why it's important to, you know, I think... And there's also the risk of maybe your work in many ways doesn't do what you expected it to do. You can't get it published where you thought you were going to get it published. And so if you tie up a lot of your self-worth into the work and it feels really good when you get an award mm -hmm. or you get published in a high-impact journal, but it feels horrible if, say, you your data is no good or your methodology gets ripped apart by a reviewer, um, that can feel like you're getting ripped apart by a right. reviewer. And so I think mm -hmm. one of the bigger risks I see going forward is, is getting really tied to my, my worth, tying my worth with my work. Because if you do that, it's really hard not to do that in any, because we culturally are, tr I've been trained to view work as, uh, as what I am worth. Um, so that's a, a pretty big risk because let's say you get out of graduate school and, and all of a sudden you you don't end up in a position where you thought you were, you don't, maybe don't have the job you thought you had or or you take a different path and maybe um, it could, that could be devastating to you or it could, but if you have the mindset of like, like Efrain said, like you never know what happens, what door opens, 
if you view life as that, if you view like your career as that way, then um, it becomes easier to deal with those things because they aren't disruptions of a path, they're just a different door. I think one of the hardest parts of graduate school for me has been, my whole life has been basically, I don't like to plan. I like mm -hmm. to allow things to happen on their own and be surprised. But graduate school is like you have to have a, a plan, you have to have a research plan, a budget. You have to think not only about your master's, but maybe do you want to do a PhD? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to live? What kind of jobs do you want to have? And that gets you thinking 10 years down the road. And I'm not used to that at all. Right. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. so um, you know, that's been an adjustment. And I think a risk of that is to never be present, you know, to always be thinking about what is it going to be like right. in 10 years. So. Yeah. So, I, mm -hmm. so that breaks into, I don't know, these questions kind of, it almost feels impossible to do chronologically at times, but um, mm -hmm. it's, it breaks into expectations and adaptability. And so how do you think those two things fact, factor in to what you've just said, said mm. there? And I, I kind of have a, an elaboration on expectations as well in the research process to say that once you get to the method, you trust the process you've designed. Um, so I suppose I wonder how that affects your, the research process, but also how it affects expectations more broadly mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. whether or not you have to be adaptable in your career as well because um, it's, it's, it's sounding that way from, from what I'm hearing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think so. I think that adaptability is important in all aspects of research but um, so from the methodology on up to the career you path you take um, it's really nice to think about like if you set your mind to something you can achieve it and like to have this goal and to go at it you know doggedly and yeah. you're gonna get there but in many ways that's not how the world works mm -hmm. and like I don't trust the process with methodology because I know I will make mistakes right. I know that it might not be realistic and I'm going to have to adjust so I think I trust small small results in the moment so okay this is gonna take two minutes per plate per thing uh, that's manageable. This is going to take 10 minutes. That's not. So we can't do that. Scrap that. We have to do this. Um, I can trust that. Um, if I have a plan laid out, I, I don't think I can trust that until I'm doing it. But yeah. Yeah. Because I suppose when you're adding up plates over a lifetime, I suppose, I suppose if it's yeah, adding up the plates on a daily basis and you're thinking in that way. I, yeah, I, I, I sort of say that because that's all I've been thinking about. The past <laughs> but like. But, but yeah, is this, so, is this my life forever? <laughs> yeah. But you yeah. know, you, have, you in my case, part of the reason why this is so intense right now is because I'm I'm not here for very long. You know, if I were yeah. here for five months, it would be a different story. I could take more time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sort of obsessed with that right now, just because that's at the level I'm at. I I don't really think about data representation too much right now. I don't mm -hmm. really think about um, statistics and analysis. I'm more just thinking, what's the method that's going to be working? Right. And I think that's just where I'm at. You know, yeah. when I get further along, then I'll be obsessed with graphs. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do you think of it? Yeah. Well, I, I'm at I'm at that, that, that different point because I I've been through through the process of 
processing plates. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, now, well, I, I need to work with uh, mostly on, on the computer with with data sets, uh, writing stuff, but also meetings uh, with advisors, uh, meeting labs for uh, maybe for uh, if I, I'm invited to to give a talk about uh, a specific topic of fungi, for example. The, my of my results with with um, with the bioinformatic stuff or maybe the, the chemical stuff. So uh, your agenda just keep growing mm -hmm. uh, on on the way. So uh, when my advisor says that uh, you you thought that 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 agenda will be shorter once the PhD is done, and it's not, it gets only bigger. Yeah, because now, for example, in my case, mm, this week uh, I'm here in, in Las Cruces. Next week I need to be in Los Santos in a greenhouse working with my coffee plants, and but also I need to 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 be on Zoom meetings with my uh, my colleagues and uh, guys from the other lab, which is the Sanibiot in, in San Jose, and eventually. All the Fridays, I need to to make a room for a for a for a weekly uh, discussion with another professor. So <laughs> it yeah. is like a you need to. I think the PhD helps you to to manage your time because um, sometimes you can be like a very full of things to do, but you need to remind yourself that 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 you're a person. So you need to eat. You need to sleep. If you like to do exercise, you need to have space for doing exercise uh, to release the stress. And always uh, it's good to, to have like a, a nice meal, for example, uh, going to a restaurant to have a, a couple of beers. And okay, you need social life too. So you need to make room for everything in your life. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting is that um, it doesn't matter uh, what are you doing, and you keep thinking about work. For example, uh, when I'm biking, uh, suddenly I, I'm like, oh, maybe that can work. And then I go back to home, and yeah, it works. Sometimes it don't. Yeah, yeah the ideas never stop coming. So yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, I think uh, being a grad student, master's, PhD, becomes uh, a lifestyle. And it's a, an interesting lifestyle. I mean, it's not for everyone, but uh, if you are like comfortable with it you feel happy yeah it's it's for you so uh i've seen uh, all kind of, of personalities on on my advisors uh, ones that are more like uh, only work they don't have a family so it's a big sacrifice uh to be on that way because uh they have sacrificed uh, not to have uh, like family parties and stuff like that or uh, maybe uh, not having the the amount of holidays that all the professors have, maybe. And you have the other part, uh, people that uh, know how to manage their time, to have family, to work, to attend the students. So uh, everything is possible. And which way are you going to choose depends on what, in, in which way you are comfortable with. Uh, but challenges never stop. And yeah. That's how I see it so, so far. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, slightly different 
train of thought, but how do you see, um, how do you guys see cooperation within research or within the stage you're at? Because you, you were getting at the idea that it's very individualistic in some places. No, it's fundamental. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, for example, now, I, I, for the time I, I'm here with them, I, I, I know that we are going to collaborate eventually in a paper which is how we measure uh, the things in, in science. So yeah, I think mm -hmm. the, the, the cooperation is, is a, a fundamental piece for doing big and good research and also for gaining funds, uh, maybe international funds even. So yeah, and the, basic, the basis of, of, of cooperation is relationship to be like, uh, be kind and, and, and yeah, just, Keep working, and, and the the good work will will spell for for will speak for you. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's that's the key. Mm -hmm. Okay, because that sort of breaks into you know if if I it might be a fair assumption to say that if if things are more cooperative and everyone's working well together, that will be a pretty satisfying part of the process. Um, but I have a sort of separate question whether about about satisfaction or dissatisfaction in the process as a whole. Um, so would that be would your favorite part about this all be cooperation or maybe something else? I've been in in the both positions when the cooperation works and when it doesn't or it doesn't work at, at the full. Um, but uh, that's life, so you need to try. If you don't try, <laughs> you know, we'll never know. So at the end, uh, it depends on... on on the effort you put on the task and how you shape the results. So maybe you were expecting a big thing, but the cooperation doesn't result uh, like you were expecting, but I still working for doing something smaller, but it is work, so you need to finish it. So, and in the other case, uh, we have been involved in where uh, one idea was like a, a small idea and more people comes in and the idea grows bigger and the work is like wow it's, it is nice it feels like good and everything is running smooth mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so mm -hmm. okay do you have thoughts there uh yeah i mean i think uh i agree with a lot of what he what Efrain said i think one area that um is also important is cooperation more broadly so like hmm, friendships outside of your field um, things you do elsewhere family relationships all those things like um, yeah science is is uh, cooperative in the sense that like it's fundamental you have to be able to work with others you have to be able to share skills and and to some extent you know no weaknesses but um, also, you need to be able to <laughs> cooperate with um, with other with other people. Like I think about how um, you know you, you you could have a conversation. So I, I come from a family family life of a not very educated family in a not very educated place, and so um, for example, I when I talk about what I do. Um, like methodology and, and theory and all those these things, it just like 
it's no, it's a non-starter for conversation, and that's not how you keep relationships alive. And so, uh, I, for me, this is kind of a different answering a different question, but like, um, you have to be able to know when to um, and how to communicate about what you're doing to people who may not care or may not know what you're talking about, and. Um, you know, that's true of any profession anyway, you know, like, a, right. you know, it's not just true of science, but like you have to be able to shut it off yep. and, and talk about other things, sports, uh, yeah. uh, you know, you no, know. but you, you, you've made a segue, but it's, it's the segue makes sense. Um, because you've touched on my two last questions mm-hmm. and it's the idea of responsibility and science communication. And so you're also you're saying, it sounds to me as though you're saying in that responsibility of communicating your own work uh, that you need to, but there's times when you need to choose your audience. Mm-hmm. So. And you also need to choose when is it important to share. Um, so, like, um, you know, I, 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 it's not, like, when is it important that I talk about... Um, statistics with you know it's a very strange example but like respond you know you want to be able to um i think i want to be a person who um has the ability to interact with all kinds of people um and i think that's important and healthy and so Part of the balance of science communication is, um, commun- you know, knowing, choosing your audience, but knowing like when to be an audience. So when to listen to people, when to ask them questions, and when to learn about other people's desires and dreams and, and what they're doing with their lives and what their jobs are, um, and 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 what what they think about. Um, and so, yeah, I I love communicating science, but I also think. Um, we are also responsible for being uh, well-rounded. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, that that takes practice, too, like anything. Okay. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts there, Frank? Yeah. For example, I, I th- uh, I'm fortunate to be surrounded by, by, by nice professors in, in, in the university, and they are also, like, uh, very good, good people because... Uh, one of them always says that uh, I'm, I'm not an expert on what I'm doing. I'm, I'm here and I'm, uh, and I'm good because uh, I have found the, the the right persons for some tasks. So I think that's one of, of, of the best advices because yeah, you need to to, to be able to cooperate with uh, another um, scientist from another field, for example, physics, mathematics, and and then a question just get bigger so um, also they they also they also talk about how they live uh, for example if if they have had a bad experiences in, in life they tell you those stories so you don't make those mistakes mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. It, it is nice to, to have uh, those uh, advisors on uh, near, near to you so uh, it's really nice mm-hmm. awesome. mm-hmm. cool. well, I think we're at one hour 40 that's pretty good. That's pretty yeah, good, guys. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really appreciated this. Was a, like a, a 
really enriching conversation. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. Likewise well. for me. Well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, we'll um, 100% follow up on um, where you guys are at. I'll just keep posted, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Important Tide is independent from the researchers on the podcast. If you wish to support them in any manner, a link is provided from the researcher to allow for this. This can be found on Port and Tide YouTube channel, Instagram, and directly through the Port and Tide website. If you enjoyed the podcast and you wish to support Port and Tide produce more conversations like this that provide an insight into how researchers work, you can do so directly through the links provided on the Port and Tide website or through wherever you found this podcast. Thank you again for listening and any support and feedback is much appreciated.